Bamako Mali, Tumani Jabate and the Symmetric Orchestra kicking off the first edition of Le Festival Acoustique de Bamako, the Acoustic Festival of Bamako. In January 2016, four nights of music marked the first time international artists like Tony Allen and Damon Albarn have performed in Mali since the political crisis of 2012 and 13. The concert halls were packed. Everything went smoothly. And when it was all over, Tumani could not have been happier. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil I'm so, so happy. I say, thank to Mali, thank to the all great musicians, all media, all friends, everyone. I think I'm in the point today that I have to uh, take care of, on my way, the crisis, to build something around that. It's not easy at all. There's president, there's a ministers, there's a farmer, there's businessmen, and also there's musicians, artists, who are taking care of the culture. And all of those people are developing the country. Well, you can tell there is more going on here than mere entertainment. As Tumani says, musicians are in the mix with politicians, farmers and businessmen shaping the future of Mali. Hello, Georges Collini with you for a special hip-deep edition of Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International, growing into music in 21st century Bamako. On this program, we hit the ground in Bamako to hear from griots, rappers, educators and scholars as we try to understand the role of musicians in a changing Mali. We'll meet three exceptionally talented children and chart their course into music during these uncertain times. Mali is a young nation, but it's also the site of ancient empires. As it came into independence in 1960, Mali entered the fierce debate about the past and the future. The territory had been governed by local chiefs under the rule of French administrators. Now they would be national politicians and centralized power. Historian Gregory Mann of Columbia University says that old tension still echoes today. Perceiving Mali as a society, as the independent government did, meant to look forward to modernity rather than back to tradition. And conceiving of West Africa as a set of cultures meant always to look back towards tradition. And that inherently meant reinforcing the power of the traditional hereditary elites. We are hearing Tumani Jabate in a chorus duo with his son, Sidiki. These are griot musicians who for generations have inherited the role of serving, advising, and entertaining nobles. We'll speak with Tumani and Sidiki later in the program. They've got strong ideas about the importance of griots in modern times. But, as Gregory Mann points out, the positions of hereditary nobles and their griots have never been the same since 1960. One way to think about it is you can't have a republic and have people who are hereditary chiefs. You can't have a society politically premised on the equality of everyone within it and at the same time have a hereditary nobility. 
Well, that attitude by Mali's early leaders is one of many factors that has changed the relationship between griots and their patrons. But before we say more, let's hear the voice of one of Mali's greatest post-independence griots, the late Bako Dagnon. Coming up, we'll meet some of her extraordinary descendants. First, here's Bako Dagnon with Bajiki. <laughs> Southwest Mali. The song comes from the Biriko region, where Fula and Mande people have mingled their cultures for centuries. Georges Collinet here on Afropop Worldwide. Today, hip deep in Bamako, Mali. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. to introduce Hip Deep scholar and longtime friend of Afropop, Lucy Duran of the School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS, in London. Lucy has spent nearly 40 years studying, producing, and playing Monday music. She began in Gambia and Senegal, but for the past 30 years, her work has concentrated on Mali. In 2009, Lucy and three colleagues launched a project called Growing Into Music, recording and filming the progress of children in traditional musical families in five countries, including Mali. The idea behind Growing Into Music was to look at the state of play with oral transmission within specialist musical families. In the case of Mali, Mande Griots, And so I spent a lot of time between 2009 and 2012 working with about 10 different celebrated families of griots or mande jalis, these hereditary musicians, this casted lineage of musicians. Just as Lucy was finishing her growing into music films in 2012, Mali endured a coup d'état and a rebellion in the north, events now referred to simply as la crise, the crisis. The Afropop team decided to follow up on some of Lucy's young subjects in the wake of the crisis. Here's Banning Air. 
We begin at our hotel on the peaceful banks of the Niger River with the sound of cackling birds. We pass through Bamako's busy downtown market where the city's frenetic commercial life seems little different than it was when we first encountered it more than 20 years ago. A collage of voices, music, and entreaties to buy just about anything. After a taxi ride across town, we arrive at an unextraordinary multifamily home with some extraordinary musicians in residence. We're going to meet two generations in the family of the late Bako Dagnon, who was probably Mali's greatest female singer of the late 20th century, early 21st century. She died in July 2015, quite young, 62. She was a marvelous singer, and one of her sons, Lassie Djebate, is a fabulous guitarist. He's grown up absolutely immersed in the griot tradition. And his daughter, Ami, who was 12 years old, and who I first started filming when she was five years old, and it was clear from the moment I met her that this was an extraordinary little girl with a really beautiful voice and a fantastic memory for the griot tradition. Ami will undoubtedly be one of the great female stars of the future in Mali. When we arrive, Ami is still at school, but Lassie keeps us well entertained, a fabulous guitarist, as advertised. Soon, Ami returns, just over four feet tall, her short hair braided, wearing a black and white frock and blue jeans, she seems like any other Bamako 12-year-old, a little shy, but poised and confident. Soon, a young relative arrives to play second guitar, and we're ready for music. Lassie suggests that Ami sing one of her grandmother's songs, Tiga, a praise song to peanut farmers. song, Ami performs the griot's art, Jelia, flawlessly. She sings a 12-minute rendition of the Sunjata epic without hesitating on a single line, just remarkable. Then she knocks us out with the griot classic, Titati. Thank you. 
ask Ami how she managed to learn so much repertoire. What was it like working with her famous grandmother? And was it hard to master the vocal techniques of a griot? Ami has little to say about any of this, instead just repeating, if you love something, it's easy. Finally, her father intervenes. Lassie says that Jelia is in the blood. It's not something you learn, you don't become a griot, you are one. Then he says, what the blood does between the heart and the lung, that is the role of a griot in society. Ami did have an answer to one of our questions. What is the difference between singing in a public concert on stage and singing at a sumu? That's the ceremonial setting for the griot's art. A private event, often held outdoors or in the street. It's usually a wedding or a naming ceremony for a newborn child. Ami says that to persuade the public, you have to sing popular songs, the songs they like. But at a sumu, you sing the real, real songs. That would be the core songs of the griot repertoire. At a sumu, a singer has to address the attending family, singing songs appropriate for each one. So we decided to put Ami to the test. What would she sing for the Koulibaly family? Very impressive. How about Madame Jalo, who's just arrived? Okay, what about a Sarai family from the north of Mali? What would Ami sing for the Maigas? We went on like this for a while, and there was no stumping this amazing young lady. She sang her first sumu at age seven, and her dad still keeps the video on his phone. There was really just one more thing to ask. What was Ami's dream for the future? 
Mon rêve d'avenir, c'est de devenir une grande chanteuse comme Madeleine. No surprise here. Ami's dream is to become a great singer like her grandmother, Baco Daniel. Though she does allow, I still have many things to do. Thank you, Banning. Wow, Lucy is right. That is a star in the making. During our stay in Bamako, we attended three sumu ceremonies, including a wedding at the home of celebrated griot singer Kasemadi Jabate. It's a sunny Thursday afternoon, and some hundreds are gathered under and around a large tent set up in the middle of a neighborhood roadway. Beneath the tent, griot musicians and singers, and a large audience, mostly women, all in gorgeous gowns. The men gather in adjacent courtyards, and that's where we find Kasemadi himself. Kasemadi is expressing his joy that two of his sons are marrying, and he's pleased with their choices. It's a happy day for the family, but also a sign that things are returning to normal in Bamako. During the crisis, wedding parties were not allowed in the streets. And after the terrorist attack of November 2015, many people were reluctant to gather in public this way. But, says Kasemadi, little by little, the fear is lifting. Meanwhile, under the tent, griots, mostly members of Kasemadi's big musical family, are singing the praises of the guests, just as Ami demonstrated for us. Kasemadi jokes that he's saving money on the wedding by having family members perform. Oh, oh, well. <laughs> so I guess it's no surprise that they are singing about him, Kasemadi of Kela. Kasemadi says two of his children, his song Zumana and eldest daughter Awa, are great musicians. They represent the future. Awa currently sings in Trio d'Akali, a group dedicated to preserving tradition against the forces of change. Trio d'Akali's debut recording was produced by none other than Lucy Duran. Let's hear a little.
Leo Dakali with Awakase Madi Jabate on vocals and the phenomenal Lasana Jabate on balafon. The name Dakali, by the way, means roughly a promise and it refers to the deep connection between a noble family and its griots over many generations. This relationship is severely challenged these days. Here is Lucy Duran. It was that kind of symbiotic relationship between the griot and the patron. The griot had all the knowledge of the patron's background and, you know, their ancestors and the kinds of battles that their ancestors fought and who they had been married to, who they had alliances with. And, and it was based on a really deep knowledge that was handed down from one generation to the next. And, and there was a lot of integrity in that relationship. It was a very equal relationship because the griot had such valuable information that the griot was highly, highly valued. As Gregory Mann told us, from the start, the Malian state took a dim view of hereditary castes. Since then, many other factors, including a radically changed economy, have steadily undermined the old griot-patron alliances. Very often the griot has a lot more money than the patron and more power too. The patron might be, you know, the 12th generation descendant of a pre-colonial king, but the patron nowadays sweeps the streets in Paris. That's his job or her job. Whereas the griot, who's the 12th generation descendant of that patron's griot, is performing at Carnegie Hall and the Barbican in London, you know, and earning really good fees. On Lucy's advice, we visited with a young Ngoni player, Ousmane Dagnon. He's the nephew of Bako Dagnon. We found him at home with his Ngoni playing the song for the first king of the Malian Empire, Sundiata Keita. Ousmane Dagnon was raised in Golo Blaji. His parents made him go to school. But they also taught him to be an exemplary griot, an advisor and peacemaker, familiar with the histories of all the people in the village. Today, Usman has that responsibility for the clan's children, who now live in Bamako. Not an easy job. Usman is joined here by his brother Timoko, who plays Ngoni and sings the song Jeliya Kuma. It says, Before you speak, pay attention to your words and be sure to know the person you are talking to. <laughs> We asked Usman about the lives of griots in Bamako these days. Ici, à Bamako, ici, y a pas le vrai Jelia. Le vrai Jelia, ça se trouve dans mon village natal, à Gouloubladji. Usman Dagnon says there is no true griotism in Bamako today. In Gouloubladji, we practice as in the past. If you are my patron and I'm your griot, then my children will be the griots of your children. Here in Bamako, there is no dignity. Everyone is looking for money. Lucy has heard this before. Well, virtually every elder jelly that I have spoken to has said to me the real essence of jellya, of the art of the jelly, has vanished completely. And if you want to find the great masters, the ngara, you have to go to the cemetery. They're all dead. Essentially, the relationship between the jelly or the griot and the jatigi or the patron has become corrupt. 
And it was that relationship that sustained griots for centuries. Usman made a point of distinguishing between an artist, a professional musical entertainer, and a griot. And he definitely counts young Sidiki Jabate, Toumani's son, in the artiste category. Bon, lui, ça, c'est un artiste. Je n'ai plus un griot. Ousmane says Sidiki Jabate is an artist, no longer a griot. He fills stadiums and entertains people, and he learned this from his father, Toumani Jabate. Well, we'll hear how Sidiki and Toumani respond to that later in the program. Naturally, they see things a little differently. However, we were surprised a few nights after our interview with Usman when we went to hear his group in a nightclub and found him jamming along with Kamal Ngoni, electric guitar, bass and drums. Here's the hardline village griot playing fusion music in a Bamako bar. It turns out this is not a contradiction when Usman talks about real griotism as opposed to being an artiste musician. He's not talking about musical style, but about that crucial griot patron relationship that Lucy described. Someone like Usman Daniel was brought up in a very traditional environment. He knows the tradition very well. He knows the stories of all the songs and so on. So when he gets to Bamako, he knows who he is. He knows his value as a member of that wonderful family, the Daniels. That doesn't stop him from experimenting and playing lots of different kinds of music. It's almost got nothing to do with it. You know, what you play has nothing to do with your personal moral values and you're not groveling for money and you're continuing to have a relationship with the family of your traditional patron. Lucy has much more to say about griots in contemporary Mali and you can read it all on our website afropop.org You'll also find our interview with Gregory Mann and more Hip Deep in Mali features. Coming up, Bamako Radio, Sidiki and Toumani Jabate. And this question, are rappers taking over the griot's job? Well, stay tuned. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. You know, one way to take the pulse of a city is by spinning the radio dial. Radio la voix du citoyen. Bamako is just bursting with local radio these days, featuring all sorts of music. Production levels vary, but there's no mistaking the vitality of the city's airwaves. 
Radio delivers messages from celebrating a sports team to encouraging national reconciliation in the aftermath of the crisis. IKFM, la voix de la réconciliation. There are powerful international stations. BBC Afrique, retrouvez-nous sur internet sur bbcafrique.com. Vivez l'actualité sur BBC Afrique. They feature music from all over Africa. Niger Pop from Lagos is huge these days. And there is news, of course, even about the American elections. Donald Trump et chez les démocrates, le sénateur du Vermont, Bernie Sanders, qui mène devant l'ex-secrétaire d'État Hillary Clinton. There's also a lot of local talk radio. Everything from religious sermons. <laughs> to call in shows. Hello? It's mostly polite, from what we can tell anyway. Even light and chatty. But when sensitive topics arise, passions can run high. Just like talk radio everywhere else. There is advertising, of course, often for cell phone companies. Naturally, you find a huge variety of music on Bamako's airwaves, starting with traditional music. We found one station that plays hunter's music and oratory for long stretches of the day. Naturally, there's a great deal of Monday music from roots to pop. Monday griot music used to rule the airwaves in Bamako. But these days you hear many styles. Bambara music, balafon pop, wasulu songs, even music from the north, like this takamba. Hmm, that's nice. You do find rap on the radio. Though not as much as you might expect, given its popularity with young Marians. Is Malian rap too rude for radio? Too political? Well, it's complicated. More on that coming up when we meet Mali's most outspoken rapper, Master Sumi. And stay tuned for an upcoming all-music program from our trip to Mali. For now, let's get back to the coming generation of Malian musicians. We've heard about the ancient social role of griots and how it has suffered in the independence era. But what about the purely musical side? How is Mali nurturing the instrumental virtuosity of the future? For that, we return to the ground in Bamako with Banning Air. We followed up on another of Lucy Duran's Growing Into Music scenarios. We made a Sunday afternoon visit to the Bamako home of multi-instrumentalist Adama Jara. 
Aramajara is a griot, but he's actually not Mande. He is Bobo, another ethnicity found more in the southeast of Mali. He's an amazing djembe player. He plays Bobo Balafon and Mande Balafon. He can sing, he can play the kora, he makes his own instruments. You know, he's a very much in demand musician who plays with many of the big stars like Babani Kone. Aside from his illustrious performance career, Adama has a reputation as a superb educator. He's got one of these warm characters. He's very good with children and he's just great at passing all musical skills because he's encouraging and demonstrative. He has a big extended family and during school holidays, they tend to send their children, boys and girls, to stay with Adama because they know they're going to get excellent exposure to music and to different musical instruments and they learn to dance and to sing and to count rhythms and you know he's just a wonderful teacher little boys in his group who really stand out. The older one is Daniel Dembele, who is his nephew, also Bobo. And he's a very serious, dedicated, brilliant balafon player who I first started working with when he was five years old. And then there's the much younger boy who's called Wali Kulibali, who's just phenomenal. I mean, he lives, breathes, eats Balafon, the complete natural. And every time I would be working with Adama, there would be a point when Adama would say, okay, cut the rehearsal, let's all go and eat. And Wali would just go on playing. And, you know, Adama would have to go up and actually say, Wali, stop playing. You need to rest, you know. This was just a boy who was obsessed with a balafon from the age of six. Wally is seven now, a wiry little kid, but as Lucy says, obsessed. Listen to him go back and forth between singing and soloing on balafon. about 15 kids at Adama's house that day. Some his, some not, some Mande, some Bobo. They sang and danced for us and played cracking djembe drums. But the standout was these two young boys on balafones. They come from griot families and their respective fathers are both major balafone players. Adama insists that he did not teach Daniel and Wally to play, but he has given them a structure and a platform where they learn to be performers. 
Here, the emphasis is not on histories or lineages or patrons. It's on musicianship, ensemble playing, and professionalism. Koulibaly, Balafon stars of the future. Well, now we're going to move from griots to rappers. They have one thing in common, their skill with words, and maybe more. While we were in Bamako, there were actually two music festivals going on. Toumani Jabate's Acoustic Festival and the more established Dogon Cultural Festival. Normally, this event happens in Dogon country, but, well, for security reasons, the 2016 edition was moved to Bamako. There were three nights of music outdoors in open air right on the banks of the beautiful Niger River. You had a rich selection from Dogon and Tuareg traditional groups to Roots Pop from Songhai Guitar Ace, Baba Sala, to Mandin Goni Juggernaut, Basiku Kuyate and Goniba. And there were rappers. Listen to the way Mali's most political rapper, Master Sumi, winds up the crowd with a rap about insecurity and terrorism. <laughs> Sumi was rapping, Banning was stage-side with Basiku, who at one point began laughing. Banning switched on his mic and asked the griot what the rapper was saying that made him laugh so much. Basiku is explaining that Master Sumi is calling out the current president of Mali, Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, for using state funds to buy himself an airplane. The idea is that Ibeka, as the president is known, is basically stealing from the people of Mali to keep his family in power. I spoke with Sumi a few days later on the roof of his house in Bamako, and he told me about this song, which is called Faso Kuka, or Voice of the Nation. Notice that the song features an Ngoni, an instrument identified with Molly's griots, as well as a female griot vocalist. Here's a bit of the studio version of the song. Yeah, <laughs> 
Je dis que les 20 milliards qui ont été investis dans l'achat de l'avion. Sumi says he wrote this song to condemn the president's choice to spend 20 million CFA on his own airplane rather than buying helicopters and provisions for the badly undersupplied Malian army, which is fighting Islamist insurgents in the north. We need security, says Sumi. Master Sumi is 32 years old, married, and father of a little girl. He studied law before becoming a rapper in the mid-90s. Today, he's one of the most famous and beloved of Mali's many rappers, but he still drives a modest car, dresses down, and avoids bling and boasting. Not unlike those real griots of old, Sumi is all about the message. On this song, Sumi dissects the 2012 coup d'état in Bamako. Many blamed then-President Alpha Tumani Touré, Atete, for bringing on the coup through corruption and incompetence. But Sumi says, who put Atete in power? We Malians did, so we are all responsible. Provocative ideas like this set Sumi apart from other rappers, most of whom attract big audiences with Le Clash, lively rounds of mutual roasting and insults. Le rap malien a changé d'identité et de format depuis un certain temps. Une dizaine d'années, sinon plus, parce que les rappeurs avaient des messages constructifs, des messages éducatifs. Sumi says the identity of Malian rap has evolved over the last 10 years. A distinct cadre of rappers are now advising, educating, and explaining what's happening in the country. Our music does not accommodate the government, Sumi says. It provokes reflection. This trend began with rappers like Tata Pound, whom Afropop interviewed back in 2005. At the time, Tata Pound was issuing bold warnings to newly elected President Atete. Gregory Mann, a historian, not a music scholar, noted this evolution. Malian hip-hop has exploded the last few years, and a lot of it's been very oppositional, going back to kind of Tata Pound stuff, which got a lot of press within Mali and beyond Mali for fairly direct political critique, not the kind of soft diplomatic language of illusion that griots often use. À chaque fois que moi je parle, certaines personnes disent qu'ils préfèrent m'écouter que certains prêchent dans les mosquées. Sumi says that young Malians would rather listen to him than to people who speak in mosques, or to politicians for that matter, because his messages have moral clarity. He echoes a claim made by other West African rappers that they are doing work griots used to do. Griots à l'origine, depuis le temps Sunjata et tout ça, c'est des griots exemplaires. 
In the time of Sunjata, griots were exemplars of justice and honesty. They could look a king in the eye and tell the truth. This is diametrically opposed to contemporary griotism. Today, griots sing for the greatest thieves of the republic, just for money. It's all about money. Dignity, honesty, integrity, patriotism. People don't care about these things in our society, says Sumi. Notice how similar that is to what Usman Daniel was saying about city griots as opposed to village griots. But Lucy Duran says there's something else to consider, and that's how you speak truth to power. There are many ways that you can criticize without actually saying things in black and white. And griots are good at that. They'll find subtle ways or proverbs, which if you're in any way vulnerable or you've been corrupt, you will understand that they're talking about you. So for instance, the song Bani, Bani lei, Bani lei, Sankumani Bankuma, Banka Horoyadia. There's a lovely line in that song which goes, Fanga Tanai Kang Filafoe. What's bad about power, what destroys the good thing of power, is someone who doesn't keep his word. That's what someone who's good in power does. You keep your word. No surprise, Tumani Jabate is not about to surrender the griot's social responsibilities to Mali's rappers. Never, never, never does come happen that the rappers are doing the griot job. No. The griot job will always stay here because no one else can do that. No any rappers can do that. Tumani's son Sidiki agrees, and he's both a griot and a rapper, as well as a fine singer. We're hearing him in a collaboration with his rapper friend Ibowan. Moi je pense que critiquer le pays, critiquer le président ou critiquer la situation économique ne va pas l'avancer. Siddiqui says that criticizing the country, the government, the president will not advance Mali. Griots need to encourage leaders to work honestly. As both Lucy and Gregory have said, a griot can steer a president by way of example. Mr. President, your ancestors did only good things for their country. Think about what they did and work harder to be more like them. Notice that Siddiqui called himself an artist. An artist is a messenger, not a critic. Usman Daniel and others make much of this artist versus griot distinction. But for Tumani, the lines are more fluid. In Western countries, they call you artist. But here, the music is 95% for the griot. The griot is the griot, and the noble is the noble. And the rappers can do what he just see at the government and blah, blah, blah. Just good job. That's great. That's no problem. I agree with that. But they are not doing a griot job. I'm one of the person who say, don't do a rap like American, like in Hollywood. Don't do like in Paris. Do it like on a Malian way. That's it. And they are. From Tumani's heartthrob pop star son, Sidiki, up to the confrontational master, Sumi, rappers are a powerful new force in Mali music and social discourse. It's unbelievable, and I'm proud of it, but they are not doing the real job. 
Hovering over all the discussions going on in Mali these days is the question of religion. One of Master Sumi's bravest raps is Explique ton Islam, Explain your Islam, a fierce challenge to the jihadis who claimed the Malian North in 2012. Après l'occupation du Nord par les djihadistes, j'ai fait une autre chanson, Explique-moi ton Islam. Master Sumi wrote this song aiming at drug traffickers and Islamists behind the occupation of Northern Mali. He says, the Islam we have known for many years is a religion of tolerance that offers help and solidarity. But you have come attacking the Republic, amputating limbs and violating individual rights. I know my Islam, but what is yours? The idea of a secular state is really under siege in Mali. We're in this period of crisis and we think about territorial integrity, whether the North remains part of the broader nation state, whether or not the French intervention is a short-term or a long-term phenomenon. But I think this question of secularism is a key one. The role of Islam in government in Mali is expanding very greatly. And we look back now to year zero is 2012. There's this coup and this chaos. And we forget 2009 and the debacle of the family code in which Atete tried to put forward a more liberal, if you will, family code. One in which the rights of Malian women and children were better secured. And he was brushed back on that. The new family code would have defined marriage as secular and given women greater inheritance rights. It was stopped in part by the actions of Imam Mahmoud Diko, head of the High Islamic Council. Diko drew thousands to rallies and protests against the family code. Diko is loosely a fundamentalist who believes in a return to the textual sources of Islam and believes in a strong role for Islam in politics. Diko has a huge amount of power. More and more fundamentalist networks are gaining ground. Why? Because there's a complete power vacuum. There's terrible endemic poverty with no hope of escaping that poverty. So the Wahhabis and other Islamic networks are infiltrating in Bamako big time, offering money to recruit people. So they're offered like a salary to join the Wahhabis and they're given little jobs. They become couriers. They become people who send money around via telephones, which has become a big business in the city now. There is another key Islamic leader on the scene. Sheriff Madani Usman Haidara, quite a different man from Diko. Haidara is really moderate. Haidara has always been seen as a populist, a Sufi, a much more charismatic figure. Uh, he, for example, organizes the celebration of the Prophet's birthday, which is more on the line of the Sufi than a Wahhabi practice. Haidara preaches in Bamana and he preaches about culture. I mean, he's a bit like the Pope, he says we can interpret these things according to our cultural traditions. So he has a huge following. Haidara often appears with musicians called Zigiriman, who sometimes use the musical formulas of Creo or Hunter's music, but they sing Islamic texts. But Haidara says constantly, when I wake up, I'm astonished that I'm still alive, because what he says is actually quite liberal, 
but even he is still within very much a traditional Islamic framework. Not long ago, Haidara took a position in the High Islamic Council under Diko's authority. He's moderate. But Haidara, too, has called for more religion in Malian politics, noting that if the government does not accommodate religion, the next president might well be an imam. Que le président soit imam, que le président soit prêtre, pasteur, moi, personnellement, ça me dérange pas, c'est un être humain. Rapper Master Sumi is okay with that. He says an imam, a priest, a pastor for president, well, that doesn't bother me. He's a human being. Sumi told us the president's job is to govern everyone, including Muslims, Christians, animists, even atheists. We asked Sumi what he thought about outspoken religious leaders like Diko and Haidara. C'est les gens pour lesquels j'ai beaucoup de respect et de considération, notamment l'imam Diko. Master Sumi says he respects this man, and he really surprised us by singling out Diko, the more fundamentalist Wahhabi leader, as a voice of moderate Islam. We asked Sumi about Diko's role in stopping the reformed family code. Moi personnellement, je n'ai pas l'habitude de discuter cette question avec les gens parce que je maîtrise pas tellement le fond du problème. Well, here Mali's bravest rapper demurred. First, he noted that many traditionalists, not just Diko, opposed the family code. Then he said he needed more information before he could comment on the matter. Lucy Duran sees a parallel between Sumi's hesitation here and the griot Ousmane Dagnon's hesitation to condemn the 2012 coup d'état. I don't think that Ousmane would have felt comfortable talking about the coup in particular to a journalist, just as Master Sumi is not comfortable critiquing Imam Diko. There are just certain areas that even if you are the most radical rapper, you will not talk about it because actually, it's dangerous. I mean, the situation since Mali's coup of 2012 has not at all been resolved. That coup opened a can of worms and Mali is swimming around in that can right now, unfortunately. I remember one person telling me this would have been early 2013, so right after the French intervention. You know, a very pious Muslim family, people I knew very well, that, you know, she had insisted that her daughters all begin to veil when they were afraid that the jihadists might actually show up in Bamako itself. And, you know, it might have been an exaggerated fear, but it was nonetheless a real one. These guys are extremists with whom we don't identify at all, and we're very scared for our daughters in particular, should they come here. So would they have been likely to have a street wedding or any kind of celebration under those circumstances? Probably not. More and more you see women wearing the hijab and men wearing the, you know, the three-quarter length Wahhabi trousers. And I know griots who've been in public transport, who've talked to the person sitting next to them. And when that person discovers that they're a griot, they just turn their back on them. They don't want to speak to them again because there's such a sort of disgust about music as a profession. These things are really complicated and I think Mali is going into a very difficult phase and I honestly don't know how it's going to come out and I do seriously fear for its amazing musical traditions. It's very worrying. I think that a lot of people who are longtime visitors of Mali, friends of Mali, observers of Mali, feel that there was a moment of great optimism in the 90s and early 2000s, and now there's a moment of extreme pessimism. And it's a shock. 
And I think a lot of that pessimism is justified. There are good reasons to be pessimistic about the future. But I also struggle with not going too far on the line of pessimism. And it goes back in many ways to the question of what kind of value intellectually, ethically, politically can cultural production and especially music bring to a crisis like the one the country is caught in. We've been surprised in the past and we could be surprised in the future. We give the last word to young Siddiqui Diabaté. Siddiqui believes in the griot tradition, which he says will last until the end of the world because it is passed from parents to children and spreads from Guinea to Gambia. Something that has lasted for 700 years is not going to disappear in 2016. This tradition and its message will survive. Inshallah. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. And thanks to Lucy Duran, Gregory Mann, Violet Diallo, Tumani Jabate, Fatoumata So, and all the musicians we met in Mali for their help with this program. Stay tuned for our third Mali program featuring less talk and more music. Visit afropop.org to read our interviews with Lucy and Gregory and see Benning's gorgeous Bamako photo essay. And coming soon, our new Hip Deep podcast series, Afropop Close-Ups, Profile Stories and Cultural Conundrums from Our African Planet, a new feature of the Afropop podcast stream. Season one starts in June. And check out our brand new Cuban Connection page, linking you to our 22 groundbreaking programs on Cuba from 1990 to the present. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Banning Air with help from Sean Barlow. And join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Greg Hartman and Stephanie Lebeau. Banning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our producer for new media is Ataneo Fiaggia. And I'm Georges Collinet. P.R.I. Public Radio International.